Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-hosts are Mike Philbrick and Rodrigo Gordillo from Resolve Asset Management Global. Our guest today is Nick Picard, Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Horizons ETFs Management. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Nick, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's a very interesting time right now, so there's lots to talk about. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, excited to have this conversation. So Nick, to get things started, uh, why don't we start uh, with you telling us the story of your career and the arc of your career, how you got into the investment industry and uh, ultimately into uh, portfolio management? Sure. Uh, I'll, uh, you know, it started, it was, it's been over 20 years now, so they, I'll, I'll try to make it quick. But uh, I, uh, I started in, um, in derivatives in, 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 as a quant. I, I studied uh, uh, math at Waterloo, so that... You know, 20 years ago, it gave you a bit of an edge. Now you need like a triple PhD, but <laughs> 20 years ago, uh, even even studying mathematics was 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 enough to to get you in the door. And uh, I was basically a derivatives trader um, for the first uh, you know 15 years of of my career, uh, working on uh, on the sell side, uh, managing uh, derivatives books, and uh, and basically being uh, you know, an, an option and, and structured trader, uh, but it also got me really interested in in quantitative finance and uh, in in investing using quantitative methods. And uh, I joined Horizons uh, almost eight years ago now, trading the or, or managing the portfolios for their covered call portfolios, and that's using options and and uh, trying to get uh, an extra yield for for investors. But as well as part of my kind of quantitative background, I was looking for opportunities in in you know that looked really good from a quantitative perspective. And one of the one of the things I noticed was you know if you look at sectors that have been down 70, 80, you know 90 percent, people give them up for dead and kind of forget about them. But if you if you start looking at them after a while, that's where you really get the opportunity to make multiple times uh, your initial investment. And that's what got me really interested in commodities over the last few years, and in particular uranium, which, you know, uh, if you looked at it a couple of years ago, it was basically down ninety percent from its high. The uh, the fu- the Fukushima effect. Yeah, right? exactly. Right. So 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 really, the the Overton window seems to be passing over the the whole concept of uranium and nuclear as a source of energy and electricity. And moving from sort of post Fukushima and hell no to ESG and hell yes. So maybe, maybe take us through, you know, sort of your top down thoughts and narrative on why it's compelling today, why you perceive this as a secular change in trend that's more sustainable than sort of some sort of shorter term, um, impact and walk us through the, the, the thought process and narrative there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think to understand kind of where we're going, I think you kind of have to think about, about a little bit about where we've been, um, you know, um, before Fukushima 10 years ago, you know, the narrative on uranium was actually, you know, quite bullish. Uh, 
you know, the, the Chinese were, were building a, a lot of uh, nuclear power plants. Um, you know, India was also trying to catch up. So there was quite a bit of positive sentiment and, the, you know, and the sector was kind of set up for growth. Then, of course, Fukushima happened and then a bunch of factors, you know, really uh, destroyed the sector. Oh, you know, in the short term, obviously, with uh, the accident and Japan shutting down all their nuclear power plants, but also the ramifications of that politically, uh, you know, Germany decided to do the same thing as well. Um, there were a lot of political uh, decisions made where even the Chinese put a lot of their construction on hold. So, you know, the demand side got completely uh, obliterated. Furthermore, uh, if you know, uh, if you look at the uranium market, a lot of that market is contracted over long periods of time. And so there were a lot of long dated contracts that were signed during the good years where, you know, that uranium still needed to be delivered. And uh, so Cameco, you know, Kazetum Prom, they were still building and delivering their uranium uh, over to, um, you know, the, the buyers didn't really need it. So that really just, you know, inventories kept going higher spot price just kept getting lower. And that happened over a period of basically between 2011 till about, you know, 20, 2018. And finally, after so many years and the contracts kind of rolling off, that's when we finally saw spot price bottom out on the uranium side. Cameco made the hard decision to shut down MacArthur River at the time, the biggest mine in the world. Um, and at, so at, finally, you know, it took that long to get the supply under control. And, and the other key thing was with Kazadam Prom, uh, they decided to privatize the state company. Before they were privatized, they were kind of a state producer and they were mandated to produce a certain amount of pounds. That also changed. So th on the supply side, there was a lot of change that happened over the next few years. And finally, on the demand side, ESG be is becoming more important. We notice climate change every day now, it seems, we get more news of in just incredible heat out in Western Canada and the Western United States, but now also all these floods in, in Europe. It just seems like every day now we get, in, you know, the, what seems to be the results of, of, a, of a wacky climate and a wacky environment. And so I think it's front and foremost for all, uh, you know, politicians to address that issue. And you know, nuclear is now resurfacing as, uh, as a solution to that. Uh, and so I think, you know, we've seen, it's a long story, but we've seen over the last 10 years, demand go down, supply go up. And we're finally, at the end of this period, we're now supplies coming down and it's going to have a hard time catching up and demand bottoming out um, and, and recovering. And so... Um so you've got uh, sort of the uh, the the demand and supply um, functions coming more into balance, I suppose. What do you see are the major imbalances if we walk this forward? So we talked about the history of how we've gotten here. What yeah. are you looking like as we as we move out through the future here with um, maybe with some technology advancements in the developments of actual reactors? some of the small modular reactors. What are you seeing going on a go-forward basis to tilt this supply-demand uh, uh, equilibrium even further into the, the sort of bull market for uranium? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the first thing I would say there is even 
if there's no new nuclear plants built uh, today, um, but the ones that are being under construction, and there's about 50 under construction right now, but even if we weren't to start any more, any new uh, nuclear power plants, even if all the latest, um, you know, potential technologies such as small modular reactors or anything like that, e even if none of that were to happen, currently the market is just an imbalance that, you know, the on an annual on an annual basis, we use about 175 million pounds of uranium. And last year we only produced 120 uh, or close to that number. If even if we recover some of that, you know, we turn Cigar Lake back full time, the Kazakhs, you know, start making a little bit more. Um, it's still not enough. Uh, we're still going to be going through through inventory. So even if nothing were to change, I think uranium prices need to go higher to address the supply demand imbalance over time. And you know, people talk, well, you know, there's there's nuclear power plants that are slowly shutting down. I was I was noticing there was news out of Belgium today that they want to shut down their, their nuclear power plants. But just the same, these the mines that we're currently mining are getting older. I mean, Cigar Lake, I think, has a mine life until 2027, 2028. What do you do after that? So I think even if nothing changes and we keep the lights on using current nuclear, uh, which I think that's possibly uh, a, a, a low-case scenario, um, we're still not going to have enough uranium. But the, the bull case over and Beyond that is the new technologies uh, that you know we're currently working on, uh, particularly small modular reactors, which really um, th they show potential to help decarbonize areas that are hard to de decarbonize. Um, areas, you know, for example, you know, if you if you run a mine in in uh, in northern Canada, you don't have much access to hydro. You don't have much, you know, and you need to burn fossil fuels, generators, and whatnot to, to power the, the camp, well, you know, SMRs might be a good solution for that. Um, or, you know, you, you know, steel production and, and stuff where you need to require, we requires a lot of heat. Um, you know, SMRs might be a solution to that. There's a lot of- What is, what is SMR standard? Yeah, what is that? Name? Oh yeah, sorry. To, uh, so SMR starts for small modular reactors and they're not actually- um, I mean, they're getting, they're, people are working, there's a few companies working on them now, um, and um, they, they've advanced a lot over the last few years, but it's not actually very new concepts per se. Um, you know, they've used, um, you know, kind of small nuclear reactors in submarines for years uh, to power them, um, you know, uh, at, at great depth so that they don't need to be refueled for a long time. So this is really just an improvement on that kind of existing technology. But it is a little bit more expensive uh, than building the big ones, which is why, you know, nobody's really thought about, um, you know, really using these, these SMRs commercially. But, but there's a potential to use these in a more economically efficient way if you can use it in areas that are hard to decarbonize. And if the price of carbon is high enough, then these become a, a potential solution. Areas that are tough are to decarbonize. Can I just get an, a better understanding of what you mean by that? Well, basically, um, you know, getting rid of emissions, uh, you know, get, getting rid of carbon emissions. You know, um, every, you know, in Europe, for example, they're going to start, in Canada, they want to start 
putting a price on emissions, and that price is slowly going to go up and up and up and up over time uh, in an effort to reduce them and put an economic price on them. So that means zero emission. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so the efforts to reduce emissions is based, you know, that's what I refer to when I say decarbonize. But, you know, a lot of people are looking at transport, electrical vehicles and whatnot, but there's a lot of areas that are harder to do, like steel making, um, you know, jet fuel, you know, that kind of stuff. So is it, is it that the SMR can be put in a place where, let's say you have a, a high concentration of coal produced energy, which is, is the, you know, sort of the, 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 the natural source of energy there, or is it that you put it near a city so that the city's not so um, polluted? Like, what's the, what's the use case? Is it like cities in China where they're, they're having massive smog, smog problems. So you slide an SMR in there rather than a coal fired plant. Is that, is that, I mean, I, you know, I, I, ideally the, ideally the, you know, the pie in the sky for those SMR companies is that, you know, they can make them in a factory as opposed to make them on site, which is what you have to do with a, an existing kind of power plant because it's such a, a big, a big construction. Uh, if you can make them in a factory and kind of mass produce them, reduce the cost that, you know, you can get to compete with, with other energy sources. And then you, and then it becomes kind of a modular, um, you know, a modular technology where you can, you know, if you need five or six in the city, then you give five or six in the city. Um, you know, the way I think a lot of, um, you know, uh, scientists or, or uh, politicians or visionaries, whoever you're talking to, kind of um, think of this technology is, you know, you could have, this could serve as your, your base load electricity that's, that's zero emission. If you look at all the economies in the world that have successfully gone to zero emission, they've done so with a high degree of base zero emission base load energy. You look at Norway, right? Mostly it's hydro. They have access to a lot of hydro. Yeah. You look at Ontario, it's basically or Quebec. It's hydro and and nuclear for for Ontario. If 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 you don't have that high amount of base load, it's very difficult to just use wind and solar uh to get to that to those levels. And it, and Germany and California are, are good examples of that. Um, you know, I think, I think Nick, it, it, it pays to dig into base load, right? Yeah. So, so the nuclear energy is always on, hydro is always on and what base load means versus, you know, wind or solar, which is not always on and would require some sort of battery medium in order to provide that always on powers. Have I summarized that well? Yeah, no, you've, 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 you've summarized that exactly well. Um, and you know, so. Uh, give an give an example, which is unfortunately the kind of negative poster boy of the world for that is is uh, is Germany's uh, attempt to to decarbonize uh, their economy by spending when when they made the decision to get out of nuclear after Fukushima, they realized that they were never going to meet um, their emission targets. So they spent a lot of money on a program called Energy Wind, Energy Wind in German, I think. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty <laughs> love you <Drew. laughs> um and uh, uh they they spent all this money to building out solar and and wind energy but it's the problem with those uh those technologies is that there's they're very intermittent and so you know you need electricity consistently to to power the economy 
And when the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing, you need to import the electricity or you need to power up your, in, in the case of Germany, lignite coal plants, which are massively polluting. Um, and effectively, over the last 10 years, with, even despite all of their, the money that they've spent, has resulted in two things. A, emissions have not gone down. Emissions have not gone down at all. Uh, I think, in fact, they're up. Um, and B, uh, mostly be, not because wind and solar didn't help a little bit, they did help a little bit, but it was more than offset by the fact that they turned off nuclear. And then the second thing is they have the highest electricity prices in the world, uh, wire up a few smaller countries. So it's, it's, it's a very difficult, you know, Germany is a rich country. Maybe they can afford these high electricity rates, but for the most part, it's a very difficult, it's a very challenging um, thing to, to, to uh, put just wind and solar without good battery technology. And the, the fact of the matter is battery technology isn't up to speed or it's, it's just not good enough right now to, to allow for that. So it's funny, I, you know, Nick, just l- listening to you, Nick, why, I, I don't know if you've all seen the movie uh, Anthropocene. No, I have not. No, I haven't. But but there's a there's a scene there's a whole scene there in the movie where they show the the um, coal mining oh, yeah. in Germany. Oh yeah, and and the the extent of it, and they're literally tearing up the entire countryside with these these like uh, machines that are the 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 size of buildings. They're scooping just literally like going to the into a hillside and scooping out the the raw wow. material for their, wow. for their, uh, coal mining. And this is, you know, like when you're watching this movie and then you realize this is Germany we're talking about, it's not India or China that there, you know, and then there's a scene where an entire town has had to relocate because the machines are coming and they're just tearing up the ground completely, you know, ripping out the coal from the ground so that they can power these, you know, power their, their coal burning. Sure, I'm sure there's five watershed issues there too. Absolutely. And if you watch, if you watch that and you listen to what Nick was just saying about, you know, about the decision in Germany to, to kill nuclear, uh, it, it makes, I, I was going to ask, what I was going to ask you was, was, do you see a future where Germany, uh, uh, goes back on its decision? I thought, I th- yeah, I thought they might, because, you know, they were slated to close the second half of their nuclear power plants, uh, next, next year. I think it's next year. And or twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three, um, they they shut down half initially, and then they you know they they knew they wouldn't be able to do it all in one go, so so they kind of staggered it. And I thought you know the last ten years would have been a kind of a wake up call in the sense that well this is going to be very expensive, and we're burning more coal than ever. Um, not only that, but we're heavily reliant on France to import electricity when we don't have enough, and that's nuclear energy anyway. So I'm not, I'm not too, you know, like I'm not sure where you're, you know, where you're trying to prove, but, but. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta watch that movie though. Okay. Anthropocene. It's a, it's an amazing, it's an amazing movie. It's, you can, well, I think you can order it on it. Okay. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll definitely, uh, I'll definitely make a note of that. Um, and yeah, so I, I thought there was a chance that they might, and, and there's definitely a, uh, a movement within Germany that is kind of second guessing uh that that decision but uh 
you know, in, in particular in the industrial regions of of uh, Germany, which rely on electricity uh, to be competitive from a manufacturing perspective, and they've relied on government credits actually just to stay competitive um, from from an electricity com- consumption point of view. Um, but it, there's a very you know, and this is the challenge of nuclear. Uh, you know, like uh, when you get uh, a warm award-winning HBO series like Chernobyl. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, you know, especially, you know, and especially in the older generation that lived through, um, you know, Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and, and, uh, and now Fukushima. And I don't, you don't notice it so much in the younger generations, but there's definitely a, a nuclear, anti-nuclear bias in, in Germany. And, and that is the one thing that, that you have, that nuclear needs to overcome. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I think a lot of advisors that are considering putting high volatility, you know, unique bets in their portfolios, people are pushing back now on ESG. And I don't think that the message that nuclear is clean energy or cleaner energy is coming through necessarily. So when I think about nuclear, um, I think about nuclear waste. That was what I was brought up in. Remember that yeah. big canisters in the bottom of the ocean? And a few other uh, scenarios that uh, that power plants weren't doing so well. So how does how does in the hierarchy of ESG or 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 you know not polluting the the planet, where does nuclear really fit in in twenty twenty one? Well, I mean, I think I think that is definitely one of the big um, you know one of the big negatives with with nuclear energy is is the waste and what do you do with that waste? Um, for the most part. Uh, well, there's a couple of things with that. One of the things with existing nuclear power plants is that um, you enrich the uranium, you build, you you know, you build your you, your nuclear fuel that gets combusted into the uh, into the power plant, generates electricity. But then there's when it comes out, uh, when you get the waste, there's still a lot of uranium in there, and uh, it, these new generation, like what um, you know, Bill Gates' company, for example, is working on, is the with these new generations of SMRs, they could potentially use some of that waste and burn it more completely. It's basically like if you were using coal, but you're only burning ten percent of it, and then kind of couldn't really use the rest. So, so there's, you know, as opposed to being a liability, there's a potential down the road, and I don't know how soon that might be, but there's a potential down the road that that waste might actually be worth something or or could be consumed more completely um in 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 new kind of technology new 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 reactors so there's always that possibility um but even but who are even, who are the innovators in the smr well there's a few private companies um it's it, there's no big there's no big uh you know um uh kind of public companies i mean maybe the i'm sure some of the bigger you know, um, uh, companies like, you know, you know, Westinghouse GE or, or in South Korea, maybe they're working on it, but in, in the U S there's, there's a chair power, uh, with, with Bill Gates and these are private companies. And then, and then there's new scale, uh, in, in the U S as well. And both of them have pretty advanced prototypes, um, that, you know, they're going to be building over the next few years. And Canada made some recent announcements as well, that they're going to be working on, on kind of an SMR technology um in in canada as well so everyone's kind of working on it you know it's a kind of there's some private companies there's some companies that are more funded directly by by various government entities um and definitely there's 
there's a need for public funding in a lot of the in a lot of those cases. So, uh, you know, but part of the part of what's happened over the past five years is that there's a lot more money uh, and funding, uh, you know, happening in that space. Uh, there's the uh, in the U.S. the American uh, Infrastructure Act to help uh, nuclear energy. I forget the title of the of the of the funding, but it basically it's it's a uh, it's a legislation that will provide funding for new research, um, as well as a potential national uranium reserve for the United States. They have one for oil, and they kind of realize, well, you know, nuclear provides twenty percent of our electrical grid. How why do we have a reserve for oil, but we don't have a reserve for uranium. Uh, so there's there's definitely more and more uh, attention being being brought in to that space. So so That's just to, about prioritizing the threats, the yeah. carbon sequestration of of nuclear versus the you know the the continuation of the of the current paradigm of of fossil fuels. So at some point you have to figure out the way to deal with the waste and use the fuel more completely, uh, which is an ongoing yeah. technology. I mean, one of the advantages with the fuels, like, sorry, go ahead, Nick. Sorry, I mean, uh, I was going to say, one of the advantages with the waste is that, you know, because of the energy density of of, of uranium as a fuel, um, I was uh, reading somewhere that even if you took all the nuclear waste from all the... Um, the power plants in the world that have been functioning for the past, you know, 80 years now or 70 years. And it's probably amounts to, you know, a couple, a couple football fields worth. Um, and, you know, stacked, you know, I don't know, uh, pretty, uh, like not that high, like, you know, and, and so it's just not that much physically, uh, you know, of waste. And most of the waste right now is being kept on site because, you know, nobody wants to take the, you know the the risk of moving it around for no good reason, uh, but it doesn't take up, you know, very much space. Of course, you don't you want a solution for that. And in in uh, I believe in Finland and France, um, they've decided to basically use a geological repository, which is basically a fancy name for saying they're going to put it really deep in in the ground. Uh, and uh, you know that sounds like a silly solution but most scientists who study this will tell you this is you know as long as it's in an area where there's no seismic activity and you know there's no chance of it um once you once you put it in there you know nothing's going to happen so so you know elon needs to figure out a way of fueling his rockets on a nuclear waste and then leaving it in the moon or something we get to mars we gotta we gotta get him on it uh-huh. <laughs> so we gotta get him working on that and i ask those questions yeah, I'll, gotta, I'll give him a shout. I knew we could. I'll let him. He probably hasn't thought about it yet. With those planets. Um, what I, what's interesting in the narrative. Is there, for, is there are there. Any... Sorry, Bill, let me just uh, give this thought. The, the narrative about uh, nuclear, when I talk to people, feels to me really hasn't shifted much in 20 years. There is that the, the layperson continues to have a very negative view of nuclear in, in this weird belief that there haven't been advancements, that there haven't been ability to capture much more of the uranium energy than you could, the fact that you can recycle it and, and put it to the centrifuges and, and, you know, bring it back to life. Um, and the waste management has continues to improve as well. Right. So it's one of these that we know, we know exactly what 
carbon is doing to our planet, or we think we have a decent signal of what carbon is doing to our planet. I don't want to insult anybody out there who, who's still uh, on the ropes, but um, yeah, you got to weigh the consequences of all the types of waste, all the different options from different regions. And uh, nuclear has to be a real conversation and the advancements need to be at the top of the list. Like I remember a client of mine 15 years ago was, was part of the, one of the companies that he was telling me that the nuclear reactors that they were making were this big and they'd go up to mining companies and say, well, drop it 30 feet, plug you in and you're set for 15 years and then we'll come in and switch it up for you versus having a massive amount of infrastructure. And it made so much sense back then, but he couldn't, couldn't get it off the ground. So it's uh, good to see that we're, we're seeing a lot of that um, moving forward today. Well, I, I agree with you, Rodrigo, because uh, like if you look at, um, you know, I mean, I think as the technologies become a little bit more uh, developed and hopefully a little bit uh, cheaper, you know, you talked about mining. I mean, you know, whenever you look at a mining project, one of the first things investors will ask you is, you know, do you have first infrastructure nearby? You know, do you have road? Do you have electricity? Like all those things are the you know the things that cost like a lot of money to put in. Um, you know, getting the ore out of the ground is only part of it. Um, and so, if you could have access to power. Um, for a long period of time, the lifetime of the mine in a lot of cases, um, that could be a complete change of the economics, right? Even if it were a little bit more expensive. Yeah, it would certainly help carbon neutralize the mining operation, true, too. Absolutely. One yeah. of the so, are, there, are there any... One of the, go ahead, Pierre. I think you're up next. I, I, one, one just quick question. Are there any companies that are actually uh, developing... Or, or looking at ways to uh, mine the spent uranium, or I mean, when I say mine, I mean to refine or reuse the spent uranium in effective ways. Is there any? Is there actually any development going on there? Well, I mean, I've, you know, like uh, these these SMRs are working on you know technology that would basically uh, use um, you know uh, nuclear uh, use spent fuel basically as as part of uh, part of their fuel. Um, you know, there's also the potential to use spent fuel in other types of reactors, um, such as, you know, I think they call them fast pre reactors. It's, it's a little bit above my pay grade. Uh, but, but, uh, uh, uh so there are technologies out there, you know, um, but right now with the problem, <laughs> the problem, of course, these technologies might show up a lot more if uranium was more than 30 bucks a pound. The, 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 you know, the fact that uranium is sitting at $32 a pound means that it's just cheaper to take it out of the ground. Uh, but of course, I don't think we'll be able to do that for too long because uh, outside of, you know, uh, Cameco and Kazatomprom, nobody really produces much uranium at, uh, at, at that price. Right. Maybe, maybe we can take that, mo take that moment to dig into how the uran uranium markets work and how much sort of how different they are to sort of typical commodity markets. Can you yeah. unpack that for us? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that's, uh, that's a, a great thing to talk about because, you know, the uranium market, beca because, uh, you know, it, it's quite different from like, you know, copper or, um, you know, uh, e e you know, even other commodities that are more uh, on contract, you know, they're trading more on, on, on contracts than, 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 you know, other commodities, but basically uranium, because nuclear power plants um, have such long lives, you know, between 50 and 80 years, depending, 
um, then you need a long-term supply. You can't afford to, you know, most of the cost of a nuclear power plant is building it. When this fuel is actually a small part of the total equation. And so once, so once you got that, you know, nuclear power plant, you know, actually, I think that's one of the bull cases for, for uranium is once these nuclear power plants are built, you're not, you're not, it's not an easy decision to shut them off because you spent all the money. Um, that electricity generation that you get from, from the point that it's built, basically, it's a very low cost. Uh, and you're just amortizing the, the price, uh, you know, you're amortizing the cost of the, the capital cost of the, of the construction. Uh, so because of that, um, you know, nuclear operators really want to have a, a fixed supply over a long term, uh, usually, you know, kind of five to 10 year time frame to make sure that they have that supply of fuel for their plant. Because of that, um, this commodity cycles, which, which we see in uranium, tend to be longer lived than other commodities. In other commodities, for example, copper, if the price goes up, well, then, you know, you start producing more copper, you know, more mines come online and, you know, the price goes up. The, it, once the price goes up, demand might stop a little bit. Well, you know, let's let's substitute copper with something else uh, or or maybe we're, we'll stop building this and that. Like there's there's some elasticity there with uranium. There's not much elasticity there on the on the demand side. There's basically no elasticity other than you know they they shut down the plant uh, or they don't build them, and so demand demand is quite vis you have very high visibility on the demand side, and on the supply side it actually takes a long time to react, um, and that's one of the one of the reasons you know when when prices have been so low for so long, it's very hard to get. First of all, funding, like, you know, the junior, I mean, junior companies have had a pretty good you know, run in the last year or so. But, you know, before then, they had no ability to raise money or, or, or anything like that. And so they, they can't research projects. But even once they find a project, um, you know, it'll take them a long time to, to permit it. And, and, uh, and because of the nature of the material, uranium, it takes longer to get all the environmental permits. Um, so it basically the cycles from a commodity perspective are a lot longer on the demand side and they're a lot longer on the supply side. And that means the price cycles last double the time almost than, than, in, than in other, than in other commodities. Um, so you, you know, next gen, which you're coming a mile away. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 but it's hard to see it at that time because. You have all that bias of, oh, well, things have been so bad for so long. Like, you know, they're just going to keep going to be bad. And, and, um, and, you know, and then when things recover, like they have for the past year, people think, well, now it's, I've missed, I missed the boat. You know, they can't, you know, it's already up X amount. I can't, I can't get in now. But the fact of the matter is it's still early innings. It's in my view, uh, you know, there's still a long, a long, uh, long way to go. A bit of a dip these last few weeks. If you're thinking of adding it to a portfolio, uh, uh, absolutely, yeah, no, especially especially today. And I, you know, and and uranium does tend to have some correlation with the other energy prices. You know, even though I don't think it's really all that, you know, merited in a lot of ways. You know, people treat them as as energy shares. So in a day like today, where where nothing has really changed fundamentally in the uranium space. But you know, energy is down 
you know, oil prices are down yeah. four or five bucks. Yeah, then that that maybe creates uh, an opportunity to to look at uranium shares. And and the futures market is not really an effective way to to play this, right? So it it, it is a highly constrained, regulated business in the future side. And then so how how do you look to gain access to this? Uh, obviously you're you're managing the the horizons hurrah H U R A E T F. And so how have you guys taken the approach on that? Um, you, there's shares, there's, you know, unit trusts that hold some underlying uranium, there's large cap versus small cap. So how do you sort of put that labyrinth together in order to create something that's investable for people? And, and why did you do it that way? Yeah. So when we're looking at an index to kind of track the, you know, we, you know, we had the idea that we wanted to go with a uranium ETF. We, uh, you know, I felt like this was a, a good time for investors to be looking at that space. And so uh, we, we looked for an index uh, that, that we could track that would offer that kind of uh, exposure. And, and uh, the, I think the selective global uh, pure play uranium index, you know, give that exposure. And what, what, what they do is they basically invest in, uh, you know, basically uh, uranium stocks uh, for up to kind of 80% of the portfolio. And each of the name, each name is capped at a certain amount, 20%. So in practice, what that means is you get the two large cap companies, which are Kazadam Prom and Cameco. And those are 20%, close to 20% each um, when, uh, initially. And that might change over time as the stocks move. Uh, but at each rebalance, it's going to be be 20%. And then you have 40% juniors, and those are kind of market cap weighted. Um, and so you'll get names like, you know, Denison and NextGen and, um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, and a lot of the names that maybe your investors have heard of. And then we'll have, um, and then we'll have the uh, exposure to the, physical uh commodity through as you mentioned uh the 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 companies that hold physical uranium and right now um that is uh what used to be upc which has just changed to the spot physical uranium trust and uh the uh yellow cake now the one thing with etfs or at least the the selective index is that as part of their um universe they can't hold Trust. So we're 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 gonna have to get rid of the Sprott uh, trust, and we're gonna have, but we're gonna replace basically we're gonna replace that with 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 yellow cake. So we're still gonna have about twenty percent of exposure to um, to the physical commodity, but it's not gonna be it's not gonna be uh, uh, exactly the same as it was you know before. But at the end of the day, what I what I like about that index is that it gives you kind of. 40% large caps, which you know will kind of survive the cycle. You'll have 40% which of more juniors, which some of them will make it, some of them may not make it. Uh, but overall, you get more bang for your buck if prices do rise. And then you have, um, you know, 20% allocated to the physical commodity as well. And, and where are you seeing the... Um institutional sort of trigger points to, you know, get the, the animal juices flowing from an institutional investor. Are you seeing that already? Or is this largely a, the domain of early adopting, uh, retail investors? 
Yeah, that's what, uh, it's a good question. I think that's what makes me, um, you know, bullish long-term is institutions haven't really started, you know, uh, investing in that space, I don't think, from what I've seen. If you look at all the, um, a lot of the, you know, uh, Bay Street research and sell side and whatnot, you know, most of them will cover chemical and maybe they'll cover Kazadam Prom, if you're lucky, and then maybe they'll cover one other name, but they they really haven't really focused uh, on the sector in general. Uh, certainly, it's it's you know it's a job that's given to the the junior analyst if if there is a job for that. Um, and you know, and it's part of the you know the oil and gas, the energy sector. So most of the attention is going to go to to the oil and gas names, and there's just not that many uh, there's just not that much uh, that many names that you know they you know, that they really care. And most institutions will buy Cameco because it's the biggest name and it's been around for the longest and it's been around for, for a few cycles. Uh, but, you know, if nuclear starts to play a bigger and bigger role uh, in in our quest for uh, reducing global emissions, I think that will change. And once we start to see some of that institutional money coming in, that could, that could, um, that could be helpful for for visibility and prices and whatnot. Yeah, so so it sort of strikes me as a as a this is a part of the explore part of a portfolio for people. It is the the part that you're you're early, and so you're expecting a risk reward payoff uh, like that of an early situation or early in this next cycle situation. I think you touched on this sort of earlier in the in the call too, Nick. Is that still pretty early innings in this space? We haven't seen the large institutional flows that would drive sort of meaningful outperformance. And given the sector's relatively small in the context of the, the, the value it's providing or has to provide to the demand equation for, you know, providing yellow cake, as it were, to various um, reactors, that there's a setup here that, that maybe has an asymmetric form to it, that you can make returns that are potentially outsized um, for the risk you're taking. And the risk is, you know, granted larger than a well-diversified, you know, a global equity portfolio. It's a fairly narrow sector, but there's some dynamics there that look to put the potential price movement in your favor. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I, I think that, you know, that over the last, uh, you know, before, uh, you know, before a few years ago, I think there was still some, um, uh, uncertainty, um, you know, with especially with uh, Kazadam Prom, because they had been, you know, producing all this uranium, uh, keeping prices low because they were, you know, selling in the spot market. Um, and and one of the things that you know really changed over and above the the demand uh, side, which which really started to pick up as more and more attention is being given to to ESG factors. Um, but the fact that Kazenimprom is now a public company uh, that in, you know it now is trying to maximize profits as opposed to maximize revenue. Uh, really, that I think that was one of the big, big um, you know big changes for for the the commodity going forward. Very cool. Are there any other? Is there any sort of unusual threats to the, the, the uranium bull cycle, like 
uh, weird stuff like a thorium reactor becoming popular, replacing, you know, uranium reactors. Is there any kind of weird stuff like that, that, that could come out of left field that, you know, you have any insight on? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you know, potentially, I mean, I know thorium reactors is something that comes up, um, you know, every now and then, um, the, the Indian, uh, government, I believe, or, uh, is working on, uh, on building a thorium re- reactor. Uh, one of the reasons they're, you know, India has been working and, but India has been working on thorium for, I believe like 50 years. They've been working on it for a long time. One of the reasons is because India has got the largest thorium reserves of anyone in the world. And, and so they don't have much uranium. They don't have any oil. So it makes a lot of sense for them to get this working. Um, and so if anyone could get this working, India has the highest incentive to make, to, to get that going. And they, the fact of the matter is it's still experimental. It's a state funded project. Um, it's been delayed. I believe it, I'm not sure when it's due to be completed, but it's still kind of experimental. So if you have, so I think that there's some potential there, but you know, if, I, I think there's also, you know, there's also other technology that could be a threat potentially like, uh, you know, there's companies working on nuclear fusion. I mean, that's the Holy grail of, 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 of nuclear power, but you know, the, the saying goes, you know, 30, you know, it's always 30 years away. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's always the technology of tomorrow. It was the technology of tomorrow 30 years ago and it's the technology of tomorrow today. So, you know, um, that, you know, that's the thing is, and that's the same with, with batteries and wind and solar. There's sure there's going to be some advancements and maybe you could address some of the intermittency, uh, issue, um, with, with better battery power. Uh, there's also potentially the threat that, um, you know, we develop much better carbon storage for, for fossil fuels. If we, if we can do that, then maybe fossil fuels become a little bit uh, easier to, and, and, and cheaper. What I like about, uh, the uranium trade and, and today is that even if we don't, you know, these, these plants, like I said earlier, these plants cost so much money to build. Even if we just keep going with what we have now, you know, it's it, the risk reward still seems pretty good based on that. So anything you're getting on top of that, I think will contribute uh, to upside. Uh, but I think it's even if, you know, nothing changes, it's 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 still an attractive, uh, attractive thing to look at, attractive uh, so, commodity to look at. One of the, um, if, we're, if we're talking about maybe dampening of demand, one of the things that I've been discussing with people here locally in the Caribbean is that almost every Caribbean nation has a very specialized workforce for diesel energy, right? So we import diesel, we burn it. Um, and the impetus for a wholesale change of expertise, new personnel, firing and hiring is just, it's a non-starter. Right. Yes, it would be better. Yes. They're, they're all very much about clean energy because they're islands and it's nature, but the political pain of, uh, of having to do a complete change in infrastructure and expertise is currently too much. Right. It would even make sense to grab a modular, what do we call it? The SMRs, put it in there. And that, you know, right now, a lot of the work in, in Cayman for the energy power plant is replacing these motors that are just getting old. There you're constantly right, right, right. people and, and upgrading them. Uh, that's gone when you don't have a movie parts for your generator. Right. So yeah. 
it, that's an interesting area that is going to be have to be navigated from a political perspective. I, and I and I think I I think we might get there easier than you think, and I'll I'll, I'll tell you why is because you look at you look at China, uh, China is using now uh, nuclear power as um, basically a, a diplomatic tool. Uh, you know, through their Belt and Road Initiative, they go to various countries and say, "We'll be your friend, and we'll build a nuclear power plant in your backyard." And and they're they're going to Africa, you know, places where they certainly don't have very much nuclear expertise, and and uh, they're going there. We'll we'll build you the plant, we'll staff it, we'll train you, we'll we'll pay for it, and then you you know, whenever we need a vote of the UN, make sure you're on our side, right? Um, <laughs> but Yes. You know, effectively, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative was a way for China to export their expertise and also take advantage of the fact that they've now built, I'm not sure how many it is in the last several years, but they've built many, many nuclear power plants in the past several years. And so they've reduced their costs dramatically. I mean, one one of the big disadvantage that, you know, and why... You know, people keep saying, oh, nuclear is so expensive. That's because we haven't built a plant in like 20 years. We, we built one at a time and, you know, they're all different. And, they're, and so we really haven't had any ability to take advantage of, of, of kind of that know-how. Whereas, you know, the Chinese have built 20, 30 plants. They're going to build 20, 30 more. And now they have their own technology. So it really gives them uh, a, a, a cost advantage. And then they can go and build them in the world. And I think that will help countries who are looking to get into nuclear with, uh, the, with, the, ability, with the ability to do that. Uh, but it, I think it also, it's also been a wake-up call for, for the United States that it's not such a great idea mm -hmm. for the United States to be sitting on the sidelines. And so I think they kind of now realize the writing is on the wall and, they, and all this stuff about the American Nuclear Infrastructure Act, all this stuff about the Uranium, National Uranium Reserve, it's really uh, uh, kind of a, a wake-up call that, you know, and now, the, and now Biden's talking about his own Belt and Road Initiative. It, it's, it's really about um, seeing that uh, China is going to use this to their advantage to to gain influence and they have to do something about it. But all of these things are positive for, for, for nu nuclear demand and uranium demand, no doubt about it. Are you, are you seeing any uh, extraneous demands from the crypto space in locating around sort of a nuclear power plants where there's excess electrons or that constant flow of electrons or electrons that can be uh, sort of used in off periods. Is there is there anything in that space that's developing as as the yeah. space tries to green its its uh, power source? I gotta say, I mean, I I have I have not seen too much of that. It just seems like uh, all the stuff I read on on crypto, they seem to be uh, going into places where you know it's either super cheap, you know, energy, um, you know, due to um, you know, they have extra energy and, and, you know, places like, uh, you know, obviously places like China, but even, even, uh, even out in Quebec where they have pretty, pretty good, uh, pretty good rates, you know, I think they've had some, some, uh, crypto activity there. I, I don't think nuclear is cheap enough to really, to really, um, you know, get you there. The advantage of, of nuclear is that 
you know, even though it's a little bit expensive, it's on all the time and you can put it anywhere. You can't really, I don't think you can really compete with super cheap coal if the coal is right next to you. It's kind of hard, you know, with hydro, if you have like, if, if it's right next to you, you know, it's not, that's not really where it's um, advantage lies. I don't think, at least not yet. Yeah. So within investors' portfolios, as you you guys think about portfolio construction, you know there is, generally speaking, we are very much involved in in putting asset allocations of you know a, a wide variety of equities that are and uh, asset classes that are within these large ETFs. This is a very specific area, uranium, yeah. very specific index. Like, how should advisors and investors think about allocating to this from a from a risk management perspective? I think from a risk management, you know, perspective, it, it really needs to fit into kind of, you know, the commodity part of your portfolio. And so, you know, kind of maybe in the real asset, uh, you know, what you would consider real assets, um, you know, stuff that's going to be, that should do well, you know, in an inflationary environment, but also, um, you know, uh, really it, it's going to act, it's going to act like a commodity and, and hopefully, you know, Amongst all the commodities, it'll be you know one of the one of the better plays. So um, I think that's that's how I would look at it. Um, obviously, it's a it's a risky uh, it's a risky commodity. It's volatile. There's you know this is definitely something where it should be you should look at the risk adjusted returns. Uh, you know, not just not just the total returns. Um, but that's 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 how I see it. The last I checked, there was a thirty five percent fall. Um, asset class, right? So yeah. you do yeah. have to be careful. Look, you get a lot of bang for your buck for sure. Uh, just yeah. to make sure that I mean you are putting it in the right size. A- absolutely, you gotta you gotta you gotta size it properly for your portfolio. You know, I mean, even even within kind of the real uh, asset exposure of your portfolio, it you know, it, obviously you don't want it should be a portion of that. Um, but you know, I look at you know I look at what bonds offer. Uh, today and and inflation uh, looking like it's not low, um, you know. Definitely, I think real assets belong in a portfolio. You know, I think I think the I think the era of your kind of you know sixty forty portfolio that's gonna be it's gonna be that's gonna be a tough era for that portfolio. And and I think I think you definitely have to be looking at um, at, at real asset exposure. Yeah. And along with that goes the the opportunity for rebalancing. You know, we've seen the reflation trade get started and then have a backfire and with lumber, copper. And as we speak today on July 19th, you're starting to see that spread through the energy complex. And so, it's, you know, it's a function of having a diverse array of uh, return vectors coming from different business um, domains and different bit supply and demand dynamics, which we I think we've pointed out that there's a fairly unique set of supply and demand factors functioning in the uranium market that is quite different um, than most of the rest of your portfolio. Although some correlation will occur in liquidity events with other energy areas and stocks, if you think about it from a secular perspective, uh, you know, I think you can see that there is an opportunity, um, but each investor certainly has to sit and think about their own uh, risks and and uh, risk tolerances and objectives and things like that. The funny thing is, you often add some of these funny, riskier type, uh, non-correlated bets in the portfolio, and your portfolio actually 
has a lower resulting risk. So something for advisors to continue to think about as they build a, you know, full portfolio of a, a suite of different return and risk vectors that they can uh, build on behalf of clients. And, a, and rebalance an appropriate schedule to get that rebalance. Balances, range. yeah. Key, yeah. key, key. Especially with highly volatile asset classes. And I, I, absolutely. Uh, you know, and definitely like, uh, you know, in the past, uh, you know, in the past year, uh, you know, uh, the uranium index, uh, that we track was almost, you know, almost up, you know, a hundred percent, uh, at one point, you know, and that's, and that's an opportunity to, to rebalance a little bit and, um, still maintain your exposure, but, but, um, uh, you know, maybe reduce some of the risk, um. Well, that, that's precisely right. And I can just walk, walk through it. You know, you start with, let's say you had a 5% allocation as a, as a portfolio manager or as an individual investor, or as an allocator, and that doubled to 10%. Well, I know you're not going to want to read <laughs> no, that. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> There's a behavioral tax. You don't want to, but you should. And, and now that reverses. And if we go through a pullback in the energy space, you're going to have another opportunity to rebalance that against two more traditional assets. And in doing so, that actually will often, you know, uh, create a tailwind that'll offset most of the fees for the, you know, the portfolio from a management fee perspective, whether they be management fee from the advisor or from the uh, underlying. The other thing that I might want to point out uh, on, on the kind of risk diversification and whatnot is a lot of commodities are definitely very um, uh, cyclical and, and, and correlated to, to the, the economic, you know, the economic cycle. So, you know, the economy is turning over and copper demand goes down, you know, you build less houses, housing, you know, builds go down. You know, there's definitely a lot of, you know, same with oil, you know, less, less demand for oil when the economy slows down and whatnot. The, the interesting thing about uranium is it, it's a little less correlated to that cycle because, you know, the, the demand for electricity doesn't change as much. And be, because of the nature of, of the nu of nuclear power plant, you're going to shut down your coal and your natural gas before you shut down the nuclear because nuclear is the cheapest one to run. And, and so, you know, from that cyclicality um, within the commodity space, uh, it, it's actually um, historically has been a, um, potentially has the demand profile is, is less, uh, less susceptible to, 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 uh, Right. Um, so it's more of a secular trend it's like, than a it's cyclical like the, trend. It's like the Walmart. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's like it's kind of like that. Yes. You go through, you go through an economic yep. contraction and, and people have to share up at Walmart that are shopping there. And those that were shopping at Target and whatnot, they have to ship down and shop at Walmart. So there's a recession proof nature to that retailer. Yeah. So sort of the same thing is as, uh, electricity demand comes in, you would shut down more easily shut downable, uh, energy production by way of, of coal and whatnot. And you would continue with your Correct. nuclear generation. Yeah. It's the Correct. lowest. Yeah, exactly. And which doesn't, I mean, you know, uh, not to say that, uh, obviously we've established a fairly, you know, volatile sector, but it, it is potentially not as, not as correlated with other commodities as well. So. Hmm. Nick, can you, can you talk about, as you're thinking about this, the macro outlook for uranium, how much time should investors allow for this? Like, it's obviously, it's not a short-term play, but how far into the future do you envision this 
this macro. I mean, I think, yeah, I think that's, I think that's, uh, I think it's going to take years to, years to, to play out from, from, you know, be, you know, beginning to end. Um, you know, it took, took 10 years to, to get us to where we are today. I mean, it was basically kind of a, uh, you know, a nine, nine year, 10 year bear market. And we've only just recently kind of recovered, um, in order to, you know, get the, the supply that's going to be required in order to get that up to where it needs to be, make some potentially new discoveries, um, get those in production, get those permitted, um, you know, uh, and that's hoping that everything, everything goes wrong. I mean, it, that nothing goes wrong. I mean, you look at what created the big, big, big spike in uranium prices in 2007. That's when, you know, the Cigar Lake mine was, um, was flooded and they couldn't get anything out of it. And that, it, you know, drove prices bananas so that, you know, it, it, if things go well, it could take a long time, but there's also potential that, you know, there's, there's, um, there's problems and, you know, and you have to, you have to say it. there's also a potential that we have another accident in some place and then, you know, we're back to, you know, we're back to where we started. So there's definitely risks, um, both that could help the price and that could, that could hurt the price. But I think if this is, you know, if, if, uh, the bear markets in any, any indication, uh, you know, I think the, the bull market, uh, could be a long one. So I imagine you, you have both an aggressive outlook and a conservative outlook or a range of outlooks. Um, what would be the most conservative outlook that you have in terms of where this opportunity can go? You said that, that a lot of, you know, even without bringing on new nuclear reactors, new, new, new plants, the demand Correct. is already outstripping supply. So, so. If you assume no new, no new nuclear reactors, no new, no new nukes, um, nuclear plants, um, what's, what, what does the, I mean, I think you kind of, you want to look at the, what's the marginal cost of production for, for new, you know, production to come on. And uh, depending on, uh, you know, where you look or whatnot, it, it probably around, you know, you know, fifty dollars a pound seems to be a, a number that you know people would agree. Okay, this is a number where we can get new projects online. And if you if you listen to Cameco's quarterly calls, they're kind of saying we're not going to want a long term contract our MacArthur River unless we're getting at least our money's worth for 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 that uranium. And they're kind of saying mid forties, kind of that would be what they would think would be a fair price. And they're kind of the low cost producer. So, I, you know, I would say that's kind of a, a, a good number on to be, to think, well, you know, that's pretty good, you know, base case, maybe a highly conservative if, if things, you know, stay, stay the way they are. So I, I think potential, you know, I mean, maybe uh, the market will prove chemical wrong, but chemical is, you know, one of the biggest producers in the world. And if they say they're not going to give you that uranium until you pay them that price, you might have to pay that price. Um, and it, there's just not that many places, uh, you know, to get it. From. Does the, uh, does the geopolitical risk of, of something like, uh, Kazakhstan, does that on proms home base? Does that, does that also factor into your outlook at all? Like what, what happens if, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I agree. I mean, you look at Kazakhstan on the map, 
it tends to be sandwiched between China and Russia. So uh, <laughs> these are these are not the kind of neighbors that in, that it, that you want when you when you're relying on on Kazakhstan for your supply. Um, so I think that's actually a pretty uh, um, uh, a risk that's not really priced in to the market at all. Um, I think that uh, most people kind of think that you know uh, things will stay as they are, but I, I do believe that that's a potential you know a potential a potential risk in in supply. Now, would that be good or bad? I mean, it would be good for uranium prices, uh, but it would certainly be bad for Kazetam shares. So. Um, yeah, I, yeah, but definitely, I think the, 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 the geopolitical aspect of, uh, uranium, uh, is not priced in. I don't think that's priced in. I, I think that they, you know, both, like I said, with uh, China trying to gain influence, uh, you know, globally through their Belt and Road Initiative, uh, you know, but also through rising tension, and I don't, I don't see us uh, dismantling any more nuclear bombs. Um, so you know, there's, you know, there's potential demand there as well. And I, you know, for uh, for the past uh, until 2013, I think between 19, the the 90s and 2013, there was excess uranium coming out of of um, uh, reducing. Uh, uh, uranium from from uh, dismantling nuclear bombs and whatnot, and that was part of the secondary supply that came out every year. It's called uh, the um, I believe it, it, it there was uh, some it was I forget the name of it now, but it but it was some program uh, to to basically help uh, Russia uh, uh, reduce its its uh, nuclear arsenal, and uh, it I don't that's not been renewed and. Now they, I, I don't know where they are on on their latest, uh, uh, you know, uh, start negotiations. But last I heard, they hadn't agreed on anything. So uh, there's definitely geopolitical risk, and yeah, I hope nothing happens. But that's, you know, that's definitely, you know, there's there's a reason why the U.S. has decided that they want a nuclear uranium reserve, is because they don't make any in the U.S. anymore. And that has to stop. They, they need to be able to produce that locally. I think they've learned in this pandemic that producing locally a little bit is always absolutely. Different. You know, um, you know, because yeah. because you know ne- you never know when your neighbor is not going to be able to to deliver, or you're not going to be able to rely on your you know on your traditional trade routes. So one, one last thing, can you can, can you um, just talk about where uranium prices were historically? Where they bought, um, where they are today. Well, so historically, they they've kind of been uh, pretty volatile and kind of all over the map. Like in two thousand seven, uh, they went over a hundred dollars a pound. Uh, that was around the the Cigar Lake uh, flooding event. Uh, then after Fukushima, they came all the way back down. They hit, I believe, close to fifteen dollars, maybe eighteen dollars a pound. Uh, so uh, all the way, you know, basically you know, down o- over 80% from their highs. And now they've recovered uh, and they're sitting just above above $30 uh, a pound, but still significantly, you know, uh, lower. Now, the one thing that you should, that I should mention about the spot price is that 
it's only a slight indication of where the market is because most of the market is contracted long-term. So, you know, long-term contracted prices have not been as volatile. They have not gone as high and they have not been as low. Um, you know, maybe I think the high was yeah, on the contract price from what I've read was close, more 80. And on the low side, I'm not too sure where it was, but it certainly wasn't as low as, 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 as 18 or 20. Um, so, the, uh, you know, though you got to take the, that volatility with a bit of a grain of salt, but it also potentially, you know, creates buying and selling opportunities if, if, uh, if you're looking. Well, I think we covered the landscape pretty well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have All right, perfect. one last question for you, Nick. One last question. Um, so it's a would you rather question. Would you rather live for a week in the past or live for a week? In oh, I mean, I, I, I would definitely rather live for a week in the future. I think, I think the future is, uh, it's, it's going to be an exciting time. I th- I think that, uh, yeah, I'm, a, you know, even though I'm, you know, I, we talk about, you know, uh, potential volatility and all these problems that we're facing and whatnot. I am, uh, I'm very optimistic. I'm an eternal optimist. And I know that, uh, the human spirit come always comes up with a with a good solution to its its problems, and uh, I'm op- optimistic that uh, um, we'll we'll be able to face all those challenges, uh, you know, in the future. So I'd be certainly curious to to see what the future looks like. I love it, an optimistic <laughs> mathematician. <laughs> it's true it is true (laughs) i love it (laughs) you must be the most popular guy at the cocktail parties that you go or maybe i'm just not that good at math it could be could be a bit of both yeah (laughs) i'm with you man the ever optimist i like it i love it okay well nick thank you so much is there uh, anywhere people can find you and follow you uh you have any any sure i yeah i am on uh, i am on twitter if uh, you look up uh, my name uh i should i should pop up at uh, at nick picard and then i'm also i also periodically uh have some blog posts uh, over on our uh uh website at, at horizons um and yeah, and uh, Perfect. I don't. I'm not that active on social media, but um, yeah, I'd be happy to uh, to hear from anyone. Love it. Excellent. Well, thanks for your time, Nick. That was really uh, a really awesome deep dive on the sector. Learned a lot. Appreciate appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.